teaching series for the fall that we've been in a couple weeks is called For the City. And um, we're looking at this idea that, that God has always been about the business of, of his goodness and his love and his truth flowing through his people to a world that doesn't know him. And, and the reason that God has set things up like this is that the world that doesn't know God, that doesn't love God, that doesn't trust God, that his blessings could flow through us for the good of our city. And so today we're going to be talking about sex, stewarding our sexuality, not for our own good, not just for us, but for the good of our city. And, and I just want to acknowledge, you know, this is a, um, an easy topic and it doesn't hit with any of us, right? And so we can just talk about it very casually, right? No, the reality is that, um, you know, some of you are afraid as I even mentioned sexuality, you just kind of retreated into the inmost person that is there um, because you're so ashamed of the way that you've mishandled sexuality in this far in your life. And you just don't want to talk about it. Some of you today, some of you are nervous because your pastor is talking about sex, right? Like, that just makes you uncomfortable. Um, some of you are excited about the sermon because you've not been able to really connect the dots about what's going on culturally and, and what the scriptures say, what God's heart is for sexuality. So you're excited about this. Um, some of you are mad because you know you're not stewarding it well and you don't want to change. Some of you are grieving because you want to change and you've not been able to. And so just acknowledge that. And there's probably a million other places that we come to the table today. But I just want to start with, with saying a couple of things. I am in this with you. Right, So I'm not like the savior who has this all figured out, who's never had any sexual brokenness. And, and so I'm gonna share some of my story in some kind of appropriate ways today. But I want you to know that I'm not, I'm not talking to you, that, that all week I've been sitting under this with you going, God, speak to me. Like there's only one savior and it's not me. Um, so, so I'm in this with you. The second thing I want us to know as we're jumping into this is, is sex and sexual brokenness is something that has affected all of us, right? Like, and if it hasn't, man, that's such an amazing blessing. Like, what a gift. Some of you, um, it's part of your story because you went looking for it. You sought it out. You found it. It was, it was your own initiative. Others of you, um, the reason that you have sexual brokenness in your life is not because you sought it out, because, because um, it, it, instead it came and found you when you weren't looking for it. You're a victim of abuse. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, if, if we can't talk about the hard stuff here, like with the covering of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God, with the grace of Jesus, right? Like God says that when two or three are gathered in my name, that there I am with them. And there are way more than two or three gathered here who bear the spirit of Jesus inside of them. And so we come here today in an incredibly safe place. And so I just want to invite us, hey, let's get past the uncomfortableness, right? Take a breath. Relax your shoulders, sit back in your seat. Let's have this much needed conversation. I just kept thinking this week about the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Right after worship last Sunday, Courtney and I and our kids, we got in the car and we drove to Chattanooga for a day and a half just to, to get out and to go hiking and to, to be out in the city. That's a great city, by the way. And, and, and we were there, and, and as you're driving in to Chattanooga, you see um, up in the mountains or hills, I don't know what we want to call them, what we've decided that they are yet, but, but, but you see up in the top of this range, all these houses, and, and they stand out from miles and miles away, and there's something to Jesus' words that, that ring true for us today, that, that when something is elevated, like a city on a hill, 
It cannot be hidden. And it's true, we've experienced this. And I just kept thinking about, what is Jesus really getting at in Matthew chapter five? And he's, he's talking about the people of God standing out in such a way, being so elevated, so much like Jesus, that, that, that our country, that the rest of our city acknowledges there is something beautiful and different about those people. They're noticeable. They stand out. I just kept thinking about the impact that God's people could have on a city and that our impact uh, could have on our country should we choose to steward sexuality the way that Jesus talks about. To align our sexuality under the sexual ethics of, of Jesus. Can you imagine a day where Nashville is no longer known and we all are hoping for this day. It's no longer known for the bachelorette party capital of the world or known for, for music or for healthcare. Can you imagine when people think about this city, they go, you know what's different about Nashville? There are no strip clubs there. And sex trafficking is not a thing in Nashville. And porn sites don't get any hits from people in Nashville. And in Nashville, there are no affairs there are no massages that end in happy endings. There are no rapes. There's no sexual immorality. And therefore, there's no shame. And there's no guilt. Because we've embraced this robust picture of what Jesus desires and how we steward our sexuality. Here's what I want to do today. I want to kind of walk through the scriptures, be anchored in 1 Thessalonians 4. I want to, I want to look at the design of sex from the beginning. I want to talk about the distortion of sex, and then I want to talk about what we do with sex. So the design of sex, the, the distortion of sex, and then what we do with sex. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, you go back and read the story, how everything came to be that is now, that, that God created the land, and he created the sea, and he created the sky, and then God filled his entire creation he, in every level, he filled the water with animals. He filled the, 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 the land with animals. He filled the sky with animals because God wanted his world to be full. In the very middle of his creation, what did he create? Human beings, right? You and me, people who bear his image, different than the animals. And God brings the, the, the man and the woman together, the first husband and the first wife. And in this command in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. And what we see from the very beginning is that God lays out his design for sex. His intention for sex for the very beginning. The first thing that we learn about God's design from sex in Genesis chapter one is that it had a purpose. That there was a purpose behind sex and that purpose was procreation. He wanted this world to be filled with people who bared his image. Had a purpose, it was to fill the earth. Second thing that we learned about sex from the very beginning is it was so powerful that when a man and a woman came together for intercourse, that what the man would give in, in terms of sperm, and I know that's uncomfortable to say in church, maybe you've never heard that, welcome to ethos, and, and, and uh, what a man would give in terms of sperm and what a, a, a woman, what the wife would give in terms of an egg through giving what God had given to them, to each other, that life would come. Think about that, how powerful that is. That we are all products of the power of sex. And none of us like to think about that, our parents, right? Like, but, but the reality is it's true that sex is, it had a purpose and sex is powerful, that, that something comes from it. 
Third thing that we learned from the beginning is, and I assume this is true, but sex was, was pleasurable then. And the fourth thing that we learned in Scripture in the very beginning is that it was between a husband and a wife. That God's design is that when a husband and a wife would come together for intercourse, they'd be one flesh. They'd be united. And that unity, that coming together is not something that was meant to be shared with many partners, but between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. This was God's desire. And we know that's his desire because it's because how he designed it. And in the very beginning, seven days of creation, God looks at all he created, the animals in the world and a husband and a wife. And you know what he deemed it? Very good. God's blessing, God's favor was on what he had created. The design of sex. Let's, let's talk for a few minutes about the distortion of sex. You know, pretty quickly, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you see this amazing, um, robust picture of what God desired and how quickly it gets distorted. So you read through the Bible and in the first distortion of, of sex, of sexuality, you actually see in Genesis chapter five, I believe, where, where this man named Lamech comes onto the scene. And the reason that, that it stands out to me is that Lamech doesn't take one wives. Do you know how many wives he takes? Does anybody know? You guys need to read your Bibles or have some courage. <laughs> he has two, he has two wives. And it's not what God designed. God didn't design a, a man and, and 10 women. He designed a man and, and a woman, and it was that covenant that he blessed. It's distorted in Genesis chapter five. It goes on in Genesis chapter 16. And this man who has become a hero in our faith, literally, the, the, the man that, that God gives his name to, right? That he would become the God of, of Abraham. That this man named Abraham sleeps with a woman that's not his wife, has a son by this woman, and we are still wreaking havoc because of that choice that he made. Do you realize that? It's not what God designed. Took it into his own hands. Did what he wanted. Thousands of years later. Wow. Genesis chapter 19. Keep seeing the distortion of sex that, that um, Abraham and his nephew go into this city, city of Sodom, city of Gomorrah. And it says that, that the entire city of men gather around this house where they are. And it says that the city, that the men of the city are beating on the house. And these are the words in Genesis chapter 19. Where are the men who are in the house? Send them outside with us so that we can have sex with them. It's not what God designed. In that very same chapter, Genesis chapter 19, this man named Lot, his daughters get him drunk and sleep with him and get pregnant. You're like, what? Sounds like Jerry Springer, right? The Bible is filled with stories. Adultery, rape. Leviticus, after, Leviticus chapter 18 is an entire chapter written to God's people. And he says this in verse three, do not do as the people around you do. And that whole chapter is about how sex is being misused and distorted. People sleeping with all kinds of relatives, people sleeping with animals. It's just some weird stuff, things that are happening in our culture. Still today. I wanna hit pause here for a second because I know you're asking, hey, why are you giving me a, a history lesson on how sex has been mishandled in the Bible. 
And the reason I'm doing this is because I want us to understand that that sexual brokenness, that this distortion of this gift, this design from God has been around for a long time. It has plagued God's people for thousands of years and continues to do so today. And I wanna say this on the front end because I realized that as soon as I said sex today, um, some of you, you haven't been able to hear a word that I've said past that because you're, you're filled with such remorse, such pain, such disgust over your past, over sexual sin. And what I wanna say on the front end is that the story doesn't end with sexual brokenness. That God has always been about walking with his people. It's a story of scripture, that he's always been in the business of, of, of walking with his people in all the things that have tripped him up. And this entire story is about God calling out to his kids who, has, who have distorted what he has designed. And the whole call is come back to me. Just come back to me. Bring your life back under my lordship. Come back home, dwell in the father's house. That this whole story is not about us fixing our lives and fixing ourselves. It's about a God who is working to redeem us, to bring freedom, about a God who brings healing. This is not a story about us. This is a story about the great God that we get so privileged, that we get the privilege and honor of serving and knowing. So as we dive into this conversation, you need to know that Christ Jesus died to cover your sin. And all the shame that I know you're feeling, he's come to take it. And we'll talk about this at the end. I wanna talk for a minute about how our culture has influenced us. This is the air that we breathe. And maybe not specifically you, maybe as I talk through some of this, you're like, that's not true. And, and maybe that's because you've just been breathing Christ air so much. But I wanna just kind of enlighten us for a few minutes about what our culture is like if you didn't already know this. You know, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. It's everywhere. It's on the shows that we watch, the commercials in between the shows that we watch. It's on the movies that we see. It's in the music that we listen to. It's constantly in front of us. And that's not even the stuff that we go looking for. Right, I, I look back now and my favorite show like as a teenager was the show Friends. And now as a 33-year-old man, I'm like, man, the whole point of the show is seeing who can hook up with who. And I'm like, I spent 10 years watching that, being shaped by that. Think about the shows that you love, the shows that you, you watch right now, and think about the, the way that sexuality is shown. Do you think that that influences you at all? The music that you listen to, does it shape the things that you think about what sexuality should be? And I wonder if we're being shaped more by our culture than we are by our Christ. What about the things that we go looking for? Not just the air that we're breathing. A couple stats for you. In 2013, Porn sites got more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Another major free porn site boasted that in 2015, it received 21.2 billion visits. And what's the content? It's not a static centerfold of a naked man or a woman. In a content analysis of best-selling and most rented porn films, researchers found that 88% of analyzed scenes contained physical aggression. Gagging, choking, slapping. Think about how that influences 
the magazine Vanity Fair in 2015 article about Tinder and the hookup culture, promotion of it. Had some quotes in this article. I want to just give a few. It's, it's instant gratification. And it's a validation of your own attractiveness by just like swiping your thumb on an app. You see some pretty girl and you swipe and it's like, oh, she thinks you're attractive too and it's addicting. John, a 26-year-old marketing executive in New York says this, sex has become so easy. I can go on my phone right now and no doubt I can find someone I can have sex with this evening, probably before midnight. Two female college students from Boston College described it this way. Guys, from our experience, aren't really looking for girlfriends. They're looking for a hit it and quit it on Tinder. They start out with messages like this. Send me nudes. And they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. We live in a hypersexualized culture. And it's not just that, we're so relationally confused. As human beings, man, made in the image of God, we long for connection. We long for intimacy. And our culture has taught us this, this idea of a soulmate. <laughs> that we're constantly looking for this one person to perfectly complete us. And we wouldn't say it like that, man, but our actions do. So when starting to date, man, the, 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 although there are things that you love about them, instantly things that rise to the surface are their flaws. And then commitment becomes this thing, especially marriage. It's hard because of the possibility of a better match coming along, someone that has no flaws, someone who can complete you perfectly. And you're still holding out for that perfect fit. The age that we're living in right now is the age of authenticity. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe this is a mantra for you. But man, be true to yourself. And there's some good things in that. But the problem is it turns all the focus inward. We start to ask questions when, when we're only thinking about us. Am I getting what I need? Is this relationship making me happy? Do the benefits outweigh the cost? And we don't just do this as singles. We do this as married couples. Half of marriages in the United States end in divorce these days. Don't tell me that only single people are asking these questions. You think about our culture, the way that it has confused us. Think about our own choices and how it's only muddied the water that much more. Let's talk about porn for a minute. You know, some of you are, are disgusted over how this has plagued your life for so long. It's that secret that you don't want anyone to find out about. And others, maybe you come here and you're like, it's not that big of a deal. Remember the first time that I saw pornographic image? I was in sixth grade. I was at my friend's house. I'm not going to mention his name in case he's a podcaster. And it was a the days of the internet where it took like 12 minutes to connect to the internet, right? Some of you guys remember those days. And so we printed off this picture. I remember the first time I saw it, I can still remember, I'm 33 years old now, so when I was sixth grade. And I knew 
that there was something not right about it. Like I knew that, that there was something that I needed to keep secret about that experience, that I needed to hide. And that's where the enemy is, right? Anytime you're doing something and, and, and you feel like you have to hide, that is not from God. Right, Courtney and I, we have three kids the other day. My son, anytime our house gets quiet, you know someone's doing something wrong, right? Like, and so things got just eerily quiet and I'm like, wait a minute, something's going on. And so I'm searching for my kids and, and I go and I find Jones, who's my son, and he's underneath our, uh, a, a chair pushed up in front of our, our kitchen table and, and he's eating cookies. <laughs> And he knew what he was doing was wrong. He was hiding and he, and he did it. And, and, and I, I was laughing because I'm like, man, I, I've been there. We, you know what it's like when you're doing something and you're hiding. You're ashamed. You don't want anyone to find out. That is not of God. Porn has reeked and wrecked so many of you. Masturbation. Have you ever heard that word in church? You know, those who are filled with the Spirit of God, those of you who have been changed by the blood of Jesus, and even if you haven't, even if you're just a human being, when you, when you finish that act, are the thoughts passing through your head, man, this is what I was made for. This is the height of human experience. No, there's something lacking. There's a loneliness. There's a longing for connection. Passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know, the Bible doesn't ever speak about masturbation to my knowledge. And you can stand up and rebuke me if there's a specific passage. But to my knowledge, it doesn't go in there. But I, I, you think about passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says, is it honorable and, and some of you, you're justifying masturbation because, hey, it's not in the Bible and it's a release and whatever. And I go, man, is it honorable though? Like honorable things are, are things that you want people to know and to celebrate about you. Like, do you want someone to read that at your funeral? Do you want your grandmother to, to talk about how, how, great, uh, how great you are at this at the Thanksgiving table? Right, it's uncomfortable, and we know that there's something about it that is not honorable. It's it's something that is in hiding that we keep in secret. Let's talk about sleeping around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or with random people, or maybe you're not having sex, but you're doing everything else. Let me just ask you, when you've, when you've had a, a sexual experience with someone that you're not married to, are you fulfilled? Or instantly, is there, is there loneliness? Is there fear? Is there insecurity? Is there worry? Do you go, man, that, that there's some, some intimacy that's missing. There's a commitment that is lacking there. And you take all this and we go, man, this is, this is not what God designed. But this is how we've distorted it, all of us. 
Think about how culture has affected us. Think about how our own choices have affected us. Think about chemically. And this was fascinating this week. I, I, I did some, some research and, and there's this book by this woman named Nancy Piercy. And the title of the book is called Love Thy Body. And, and she talks about just the, the, the chemical functions of our brain and what is happening in, in intercourse. And this is what she texts. She talks about this chemical called oxytocin. Did I pronounce that right? You smarter people than me? Okay. Scientists first learned about oxytocin because of its role in childbirth and breastfeeding. The chemical is released when a mother nurses her baby and it stimulates an instinct for caring and for nurturing. It's often called the attachment hormone. But imagine surprise when scientists discover that oxytocin is also released during intercourse, especially, but not exclusively, in women. Oxytocin has been shown to create a sense of trust. As one sex therapist puts it, when we have intercourse, we create an involuntary chemical commitment. And the same hold truths for men. The main neurochemical responsible for the male response in intimate sexual contact is vasopressin. It is structurally similar to oxytocin and has a similar emotional effect. Scientists believe it stimulates bonding with a woman and with offspring. It has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. The article goes on to say, or that this book goes on to say, even if you think you're having no strings attached hookup, you are in reality creating a chemical bond whether you mean to or not. She writes about pornography. She says, pornography changes the chemistry of our brains. Like other addictive triggers, porn floods the brain with dopamine. And that rush of brain chemicals, when it happens repeatedly, it rewires the brain reward pathway and can become a default setting. Brain scientists refer to this as neuroplasticity idea that neurons that fire together wire together. Eventually, the brain is overwhelmed by the chemical overload and it shuts down some of its dopamine receptors, which means that the porn viewer does not get the same high and has to seek out more hardcore porn to feel the same dopamine effect. There's this longing in us for intimacy, for connection. And we seek that out in so many ways sexually that end up coming back and hurting us and hurting so many people around us. The design of sex, the distortion of sex. So what do we do with sex? First Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life For those of you who are married, I want to just say these things. And, and, and I'm hoping, man, that, that God brings some, some conviction. 
It's, it is never okay if you're married to look at porn. And it's not okay to be scrolling through Instagram and to fantasize about someone that's not your spouse. It's not okay to have an emotional um, connection with a, a person of the opposite sex where you're hoping for more. Those things impede your sanctification. It is God's will that you become like Jesus. And when you and I start going down those roads, it is slowing down, it is working against the work of Jesus in our lives to make us more like Jesus. It's impeding your sanctification, but it's also impeding and working against and not consistent with the covenant that you entered into marriage. That you looked at your spouse and you said, I will give myself wholly and only to you. And when you're fantasizing about other people, when you're pursuing other images, when you're having an affair, you're breaking covenant. It's a big deal. See, there's something that is safe and good and sacred and secure and holy about sex between a husband and a wife that are committed to each other in marriage. There's a security. There's a blessing. There is favor from God that exists when a husband and wife give their lives to each other. And that does not exist when there's not covenant. That favor, that blessing is not there. You see, God continues to bless a husband and a wife. God continues to, to love. This is what the scriptures say, that, that he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. He doesn't say he who finds a, a, a girlfriend that will live with him finds something that is good. He says, no, the type of person that is willing to, to sacrifice and to say, for the rest of my life, I will give myself fully to you. God says, I will bless that because it's us living into the design from the very beginning. It's us partnering and aligning our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. And any distortion of that is not something that God looks at and says it's very good. As much as our culture endorses same-sex relationships, as much as our culture endorses, hey, if, if you love them, it's okay. That's enough. As much as our culture endorses, hey, explore sexually and find the right match. It's not what God designed. It's not what God looks on with favor. In fact, in Ephesians chapter five, it says, because of sexual immorality, the Lord's wrath is coming. You see, there's, there's, there's strength in the marital commitment. There's security, knowing that they're not going anywhere. It's a relationship where you give of yourself for their good, where you sacrifice of yourself for their pleasure, for their well-being. You can be fully seen and known and loved in the marital context. You, you trust yourself with that person physically and sexually and emotionally. And don't give those 
to people that you're not married to. Jesus in Matthew chapter five said, whoever looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And I wanna encourage you if you come here today and, and you're married and there are things that are in your life that are causing you to stumble, you gotta get rid of them. You, you gotta become as serious about your sanctification as you are about your job or whatever it is that you're passionate about. If you know that Instagram is one of those things that make you stumble, then delete the stinking app. If you know that music is something that's making you stumble, that, that, that you find yourself listening to, to music and, and, it, and it rouses something in you that is not of God, then cut it out. When I was younger, I remember I, I would go and look for movies that I knew there would be nudity in and it'd be subtle so I could hide it from my parents. And some of you are still operating that way today. And I go, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, be wise. If you're on business or if you're at home by yourself, don't put yourself in a place to fail. Put your computer or your phone or, or whatever it is in another room. Don't go searching on Netflix like when you mindlessly go, man, that's a place where the enemy can just work. Where you're like, well, what am I supposed to do then? Go on a run. What if it's raining? Even better. It'll cool you off. Be holy. Call somebody. Call someone in your house church. Hey, tonight, spouse is out of town. I need some help. Will you pray for me? Will you come over? Can we go to dinner? Can I spend the night on your couch? Like, what are the measures that we're willing to take as men and women who, who are trying to honor the covenant that we made to God? Be holy. Give yourself wholly to your spouse and only to your spouse. Take every thought captive. We can do this. I realize how often the enemy will come after me and, and he'll try to get my attention at, at another girl or, or, or he'll put an image in my head literally when I'm sleeping in the middle of the night. And I didn't seek things out and I wasn't fixing my eyes on things. It's a pure attack from the enemy. And so what happens is, is he does that, he attacks us. And so often we just, we, we're weak and we feel like victims. And God says, my spirit is in you. Take those thoughts captive. As, as a thought is passing through your head to start dwelling on someone that is not your spouse, take that thought captive. Very practically, when a pretty girl walks by or the enemy's trying to get my attention, I instantly focus on my wife. And I don't do this perfectly. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the one who, who walks in, in complete sanctification, but I'm going, I'm actively trying to fight for the covenant that I made with my wife. When I think about what I want for me, what I want for you, for those of you who are married over the long haul, is for us, for that 50% divorce, to not touch our church. 
for us to have been faithfully married. Those of you who have kids, man, to show your kids what it looks like to be faithful. Complete fidelity. That's the goal. That's the standard. For those who are single, man, to the culture, um, sex is a pinnacle of the human experience. Right? To go through life and not have sex is missing out. It's not being true to yourself. I go, but to followers of Jesus, oneness with Christ is a pinnacle of the human experience. Jesus was a single celibate man. He sets the standards. And he says things like this, I've come to give you life and give you life to the full. Jesus knew the urge. He knew the cravings. He knew what it felt like to to just want to have a release. And I want to encourage you, those of you who are single, the same spirit that was in Jesus is in you. Hebrews chapter four says that he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. I want to encourage you, if you come here today and, and you're single, and you're lonely, sex is not the solution. Finding a subpar relationship is not the solution. Fight for spiritual friendships. Man, there's something that is so satisfying. There's a pleasure that comes when when brothers and sisters connect around the Lord having dinner with a guy a couple weeks ago. And, and man, I could just tell instantly, this guy is going to be a friend of mine for a long time. And he's sharing parts of his story and questions that he's wrestling with. And, and I'm sharing my story and things that, that I'm wrestling with and things that I'm working through. And there's this, this bond. And it's not this homosexual connection. No, it's a brothers in Christ. Right, you read about this in, in, in 1 Samuel that David, he goes to his best friend, Jonathan. You know what he says to him? He says, your love to me is better than that of a woman. And we read that in our culture and we're going, oh, it's because he was gay. No, he wasn't gay. He knew that there's a connection that exists between God's people that is pure pleasure, that is pure delight. And I wanna encourage you, prioritize those relationships if you're single. It is good, it is enough What do you look for in a spouse? Right, we talked about this some last week. You know, when I was in college, I, was, I came to college and I was such a mess. I did not know how to treat girls. The Holy Spirit convicted me. Hey, you need to take some time off of the pursuit and channel that towards pursuing my heart. I remember going a year, not pursuing, not pursuing Pursuing girls, right? That's what you're supposed to do as a freshman in college, right? The Lord was reworking some things in my heart. And I remember the summer after my freshman year, I was on this freshman orientation team and every Tuesday night we would get together and we would talk and we were thinking about how to, to acclimate the freshmen and, and, and to, 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 to get them accumulate or to, to welcome them to campus. And, and I remember on Tuesday nights, we would start with, with a time of, of devotional. And I remember Courtney sharing one night and my eyes were open. I knew Courtney. I knew she was fun and beautiful and sweet, but there was something about seeing her love for the Lord that went, that is what I want. 
That's what I want. I want to encourage you, those of you who are, are single right now and you don't want to be, do not settle. Sex is good. It is pleasurable. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. But it's not the only pleasurable thing in life. And to give away yourself when there's not covenant with someone that loves Jesus just as much as you, so much pain. Jesus has some, some words for, for, for us, for those who are single. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's a hard truth to live with, to, to deny our, our sexual feelings, to deny the, that we're sexual beings, right? And culture says, no, explore. And the Lord says, you'll do better to deny yourself. You're like, I can't, I don't know how. I've been trying this. The Holy Spirit is in you. And do you know one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit It's on the tail end of that list in Galatians 5? It's self-control. You have it in you. I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 56. He's, he says to the eunuchs, He's talking essentially just about people who are stewarding their sexuality, who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, listen to this, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the Lord looks at you. He says, if you'll steward this in a way that pleases me, if you'll commit your life to me, you will be mine forever. I will give you a name that will endure forever. And, and the reality is that as, as single people and as married people, when we choose to live differently as, as God's people, when we choose to live differently than the world because of Christ, we become a city on a hill. And our city needs to see some men and women who are more serious about their Savior than they are about their sexual gratification. They need to be shown. They need to be shown how, how to steward sexuality in a healthy way that honors the Lord, that honors your spouse, that leaves no shame or no regret. Here in just a minute, we're gonna take communion. And some of you, man, you're, and, and I know this because this is my story, man, you're just so haunted by your past. And I want you to know that the grace of Jesus is a real thing, in particular with sexual sin. We know this because this is what Jesus showed us, how he treats it. In John chapter four, he meets this woman, been married several times. She's still living with a man that's not her husband. And Jesus goes up to her and he says, he sets her free. John chapter eight, this woman is caught in adultery. And the Old Testament law says that, that people who are caught in adultery should be stoned, man and woman. And Jesus comes, and I love how John Tyson says it. He says he draws a wedge and he drives away the accusers. And he looks at this woman who is so broken about her sin, who is so disgusted over the person that she's been. And he says, where are your accusers? And she said, they're not anywhere. They're all gone. And he says, then neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. And what you discover in Jesus is that Jesus comes along and he understands your pain and he understands your agony, he understands the remorse and you can sit on it and you can hold it and you can try to undo it or you can give it to him. And let him forgive you. One of my favorite passages in all the Bibles, in the middle of Luke, Jesus tells a story of, of, a, of a man 
who has been forgiven of much. And, and he says this line, he who has been forgiven of much loves much. And for those of you who are just absolutely wrecked over your sexual brokenness, the Lord wants to cover it and to free you. And you'll discover that all this shame turns into this deep allegiance to Jesus. Our God brings freedom. Some of you need to hear that, that, that there's a moment when the Lord comes and he breaks the chains in your life, the chains that you never thought would, are gonna come off, the things that you never thought were possible. Man, he puts a porn addiction to death. I've seen it. He can put a masturbation addiction to death. I've seen it. I've been walking in full-time ministry for, for 12 years now. He puts a mind controlled by lust to death. He can do it. And some of you just need to know you're not destined to have this in your life for the rest of your life. That God so desperately wants to bring freedom. So here's what we're gonna do in just a minute. We're going to, to take communion. We put those slides up, please, Rachel. The first thing I wanna invite you to do is if you come here today and you just need some prayer, to come to the respond bear in the back. There'll be some men and women love to pray with you. Right, if you come here today and you're like, I just need to, to get some things off my chest and to share, come and we'll pray with you. There's no judgment. Prayer disclaimer for the rest of us. Hey, don't assume that people are coming back there for prayer. This is what they need, right? Don't make judgments. If you need prayer, come to the back receive prayer. The second thing I wanna invite you into, the second slide, is, is, is we have just a, a, a whole page on our website of, of professional counselors. And some of you come here today and, and God's waking up. Hey, you have a bigger problem and you wanna do something about it and you realize that, that it's not gonna just get fixed today and we would love to connect with you and to help you get whatever help that you need. The third thing I wanna invite you into is, is to meet with our pastoral team. When we go to that last slide in particular, if, if, if there are men and you go, man, I just want to talk to somebody, please email me. If there are women and you go, I need to talk to somebody, please email Nana. As we take communion, I want to invite you to take the bread and drink the cup and to pray together. There's some of you that you just need to confess some sin. You can do that. Some of you need to celebrate. You need to think about some of the chains that have been broken in your life. Some of you, you just need to pray, God, hey, would you give me strength? I know that I'm in this battle and I want to fight well. And so in communion, man, let's just bring our sexuality back to Jesus. And I want to warn you, for those of you who are resolved to keep doing as you wish, you're rejecting God. And I pray that your eyes are open to what you're doing. Let's pray and then we'll take communion. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this conversation. I pray, God, for... Um, I mean, I, I know that everything that needed to be talked about was not talked about this morning. And so, Jesus, we trust in you. We lean on you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would keep doing the work in us that we need. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.